You are listening to Porch 84, a podcast that gives voice to community advocates in Southeast Iowa. My name is Mike Heaton, and joining me from his porch on South Adams in Mount Pleasant is Jeff Fager, the Democratic candidate for District 84 of the Iowa House of Representatives. Each week prior to the November 3rd election, Jeff and I will be meeting with key community advocates on Jeff's porch. We will listen, we will learn, and we will discuss the key issues impacting our communities from Wayland to West Point, from Winfield to Lockridge, and right here in Mount Pleasant. We will tackle all the big issues like healthcare and childcare, agriculture and the arts, senior living and rural life. No matter who you vote for in November, we are glad to have you along on this weekly journey as we learn about the issues and work together to make Southeast Iowa a truly great place to live. Welcome back to episode two of Porch 84, our podcast where we interview community advocates from across Southeast Iowa. Jeff, I heard you had a fantastic interview around healthcare this week. We had a very good conversation on my porch this week with Dr. Sarah Ledger and her husband, Jacob Dodds. We're very fortunate to have this couple uh, join me on my porch this week and, and have a great conversation on uh, rural health care and how we can make sure it's safe and secure and available, accessible to our citizens here in the 84th District. Well, I'm really excited to hear how that interview went and to learn more about healthcare in Southeast Iowa. Let's listen to that interview. Well, good afternoon to Dr. Sarah Ledger and her husband, Jacob Dodds. In the interest of full disclosure, I want you to know that Dr. Ledger is my personal physician, so I've gotten to know her over the past several years and gotten to trust her. So I'll probably just uh, refer to her as Sarah as we chat. So we'll start, Sarah, with you. What brought you to Mount Pleasant, Iowa? Well, Jeff, that's a great question. I actually grew up in Southeast Iowa. Um, I am born and raised in Fairfield, but I actually grew up on a farm. So country life is, is for me. I left town to go to college and, and medical school, and I did some rotations in bigger cities, and I spent eight years in Des Moines doing training. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, this is really where I belong. So this is where I ended up. That's great. Now, I know that eight years in Des Moines, that must have been interesting. You probably saw a wide variety of situations that may not appear very often here in Mount Pleasant. So what is it about rural health care that you did feel like this was your place to be? Well, when looking for a place to settle down, I wanted to come to a close-knit community where I felt like... I could really be part of the community, uh, not only with healthcare, but also as a leader of the community, having my kids involved in activities, you know, really get to know my patients, not just in the office, but also outside the office as friends and fellow community members. That's a big difference when you're talking about being in a small rural community versus in Des Moines, where I may not see any of my patients at all outside the office. Now, you are at family practice here in Mount Pleasant, which is physically attached to the Henry County Health Center. 
But your clientele, the, the area that you serve, must be much broader. Tell me about the extent of that. Oh, yes. So, I mean, I see... I see patients from all over Southeast Iowa. I have patients that drive from Van Buren County. I have patients that come over from Jefferson County, patients from Lee County, Washington County, Des Moines County. Yeah, I think, I, I think the most important thing when you're talking about having a relationship between a physician and a patient is you mesh together and you learn to trust each other. And so when you find somebody that you, you really do trust, you're willing to go a little bit further for that person. Which sounds like relationship is really important in this uh, doctor-patient connection, and maybe, would you say, more so in a smaller community than, say, a city like Des Moines? Oh, absolutely, because you want to be somebody that when you see your patients that you know from the office, you want to still be approachable out in the community as well. So, um, and I think it's important to be involved out in the community and basically be a good role model as best as you can. Now, we've chatted a bit about what brings you here, the strengths of rural health care, but obviously we are facing some challenges in that area. I'm just going to let you talk a bit about the challenges that uh, you've been facing since you've been here and, and maybe have been growing since then. Oh, where do I start? Huh. Well, I mean, let's just, maybe let's talk about cost. Okay. okay? Cost is always a, a, a big deal. So the cost of healthcare, the cost of healthcare has definitely changed even in the last 10 years that I have been practicing. You know, I think the biggest change that I have noticed has to do with prescriptions and prescription drug coverage. Mm -hmm. I, I'm always very conscientious of how much medications cost. And so as a physician, I think we're, we're always looking at what is going to be the best medication for the scenario or, or whatever we're treating that would cost the least. When you prescribe a medication, you want that patient to take the medication. You want them to be compliant. And so um, if it's something that is incredibly expensive, people aren't going to pay that money and, you know, won't treat their condition. Um, how do you, how do you keep up with all the plans the the very you know Medicaid Part D and the dozens of various insurance policies? How do you keep up with that? That's not anything that we learned in medical school. Let me just tell you that, and that's not really anything that I anticipated I would have to keep up with. But that can be that can be very difficult because it can actually change from year to year. In fact, with Medicaid. It changes sometimes multiple times a year, and um, you have to get on and check the different formularies because they have, basically, they, they strike certain deals with different medication companies, and these deals enable them to get a cheaper medication um, or a medication that, that would cost them less money. However, the problem being that if that's a medication that they're going to pay less for, it's going to be on their preferred list, which means that's the list I really need to pick from. That's not always a really good feasible option, however, so that can make it very difficult. One of the very difficult things, too, is when a preferred medication changes halfway through the year or from year to year, and you get frantic phone calls from patients saying, 
I got a letter from my insurance company and they're saying that they're not going to pay for this anymore and they want you to replace it with something else. Right. And then we don't know what they're going to cover and you kind of have to guess or they will suggest that you replace with a medication that is in a different class that is not a suitable replacement for that particular drug. And that tends to put us in a bind sometimes. One of the things that I've heard, and since you've had experience both in Des Moines and, and here in Mount Pleasant, uh, you might be able to speak to this, that our constituency in, in rural Iowa is somewhat more dependent on Medicaid and Medicare. Is that true? And how does that affect the decisions you make? I would say yes, that is true. I don't necessarily think it affects a lot of the healthcare decisions that we make in general. However, it does sometimes take a little bit more time and a little bit more work to get to the end point of treatment that we want. And with that, I'm kind of alluding to the prior authorizations, which can, it can get very cumbersome. We as physician professionals in the trench, seeing the patient, touching the patient, we know our patients, then have to make a phone call to somebody sitting in an office somewhere to plea our case to get a certain test done and then being told, well, yep, I, we're just, we're going to deny that until you do X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. which then we look at it as we really don't need to do X, Y, and Z. That's costing the system more money, but we have to do X, Y, and Z to get to the end point. So um, in a way, I feel that prior authorizations have actually increased the cost of healthcare. As a physician in what would be considered a, a smaller practice if you were in an urban area, uh, how much burden, financial burden it is on your practice to keep up with all those? I mean, how many? Uh, yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, we actually have somebody hired and that's all she does all day is help out with doing prior authorizations. But it also takes time, which is time away from me being available to my patients and time away from my family. Prior authorizations, I would say definitely is probably one of the biggest things that, that cause burnout in my field of healthcare because of all of the cumbersome work. And when you're a physician and you know what the next step needs to be and then being told by somebody in an office that they don't think your patient needs that, that can be, that can be pretty tough. The other tough thing with them, um, when we switched over to the managed care organizations, uh, there, was a, there was a time period of quite a few months where we actually did not see any reimbursement, none. Ah, that leads us to the really big issue that of course we wanted to get to, and, and this is a good segue to that. And uh, we recognize that it's been three years now, Sarah, the, since the decision. Yeah, I, would uh, I think it has been about three years and multiple insurance companies later. <laughs> right, right. And for our, our listeners, I'll just remind them, we're talking about 
the decision to privatize the management of Medicaid reimbursements and those monies. That means that for-profit corporations have taken over the management of dealing with Medicaid reimbursements and so forth. Well, I'm going to turn this back to you, uh, and, and please repeat what you just said, because that's an astounding uh, information. When the, the state decided to transition over to managed care organizations for insurance, those insurance carriers, I mean, they're private. They want to make money. They were very disorganized. It went very quickly. We did not see reimbursement for several months. I mean, into the tens of thousands of dollars that were owed to small businesses, hospitals. I know the University of Iowa, which is you know, it's a big hospital, uh, they were owed millions, mm-hmm. millions. And so that was that was a strain on the healthcare system because we we have to have reimbursement to keep our business going as well. So do they. You have to keep money coming in to keep hospitals open, clinics open, and so. That was, that was very challenging. It was also very difficult to get coverage for a lot of our patients on certain tests and medications during oh. that time as well. Oh, now there's, mm-hmm. there's another thing that we want to explore. Do you personally know some of those situations where uh, a patient that uh, you felt needed a certain treatment was denied? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yep. The hardest thing is really what it's doing to patients. It's it's go ahead. It's, it's just not fair to these patients uh, to have to wait months to get a test done. This is a big deal. So our citizens are suffering uh, because of some of these decisions and the terrible uh, bureaucracy that they have to go through. I think we'll. Take a little break here and come back in just a moment. Our national election on November 3rd is arguably one of the most important in American history. Every citizen in this country needs to step forward, find how to vote, find the rules, plan ahead. In Iowa, you can vote on Election Day, November 3rd. You can vote early at the courthouse. You can sit in the comfort of your home or your dormitory and fill out an absentee form and have that ballot mailed directly to you at home. Fill it out and mail it in. But there must be a plan. Every four years, our nation asks us to step forward and vote in a presidential election. That's not too much to ask to find a half an hour, 15 minutes for our civic duty. Please register and vote. Your citizenship is important and your friends and neighbors in Iowa are counting on you. Welcome back to episode two of Porch 84. Jeff has been exploring health care in Southeast Iowa with Dr. Sarah Ledger, a family practice physician in Mount Pleasant. Joining Dr. Ledger in her interview with Jeff was her husband, Jacob Dodds, the director of EMS services at Henry County Health Center. Let's listen in. I want to bring in Jacob Dodds. And so I'm just going to ask Jacob, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and uh, what you're doing in Mount Pleasant. Well, uh, I also just grew up a little little bit down the road. I was 
born and raised over in Danville. Uh, so Southeast Iowa is home to me. Um, and I actually started my career here as a paramedic uh, back in 2001. So I started out here. Sarah and I got engaged. And when she, as she was finishing medical school, I moved up to Des Moines. And I had the opportunity to work as a paramedic in several different EMS systems in the Des Moines area. So I got some experience with, you know, the big city EMS world. Really found that I enjoyed it more in the, in the rural setting. You know, when the opportunity came up to move back home, it was just a, a natural fit. We moved back down here. I came back to work here at the hospital. And uh, for the last year, I've served as the EMS director here at Henry County Health Center. With everything that's been going on in, in healthcare in general, with EMS being part of the healthcare system, it's definitely been a challenging year to, to take over as a, as a director for a service that serves the whole county like this. Yeah, we've, we've seen a lot of the publicity in our local media uh, around the EMS uh, service here. So maybe <laughs> as much as in a nutshell, what's going on? Well, so what's happening here in Henry County really isn't unique to Henry County. This is, this is happening across the state. And the problem is, is that it's becoming very financially difficult to continue to operate ambulance services. We've seen a, an overall decrease in our reimbursement, and we have no real good solid mechanism for maintaining the funding necessary to maintain a state of readiness. And what a lot of people don't understand about operating an ambulance service is that you have, you have your fixed cost of readiness, and then you have the cost of response. So, you know, the fixed cost of readiness are things like paying for the ambulances themselves, which cost upwards of a quarter million dollars to acquire and uh, maintain the equipment for. Uh, you have the staffing that you have to have on duty 24-7, 365 days a year. Um, you have the supplies and equipment that, that we have to maintain that outdates and has to be replaced regularly. But then you also have the cost associated with response, and that's using those supplies, the, you know, the cost of the diesel fuel and those things that go along with that. And so that's kind of where our revenue side of it comes into play because most ambulance services bill for service. Mm -hmm. So depending upon whether or not it is funded through taxing mechanism, here in Henry County, it happens to be funded through a levy that the hospital is able to apply under state law, where there's a $0.27 cents per $1,000 valuation tax that raises about 10 to 15% of our, our operating expense. And we, we, we have to make up the remainder of that for fee-for-service. And so as changes occur within the insurance industry, and the MCO has also impacted us, it impacts our overall bottom line and it changes the cost associated with what it takes to operate. What was unique here in Henry County is because we are operated by the hospital and the hospital is a critical access hospital. There are changes that were made within that critical access hospital designation that effectively penalized the hospital because it operated an ambulance. And I think as that whole thing went through, I think there's still a lot of people that are very confused about what that meant. There were a lot of numbers that were thrown out in the media. What it really came down to was that there was about $670,000 in overall Medicare reimbursement that the hospital lost simply because it operated an ambulance. It had nothing to do with the ambulance revenue. It was they, 
they took a few cents away from every dollar that they charged for a surgery or a lab or an x-ray or any other service that was provided in the hospital just because we were there. And those pennies totaled up to that big massive amount, wow. which is a, a substantial loss for the hospital. And so it, it forced us to start really looking at how do we do this more efficiently? How do we do this more effectively? But our neighboring counties are in the same boat. Lee County, Jefferson County, and up until July 1st, Washington County were all serviced by private ambulance companies. And when you're running that as a business, if you're taking a loss on everything, that doesn't work. And so you're seeing a big shift in, in how those are, are, are operating. And those, those MCOs have had a dramatic impact on us as well because of the fact that we aren't getting paid. We're not even being paid what it costs us to provide service. So uh, there's been some help that has come down from that. One thing is the Ground Emergency Medical Transport Program, which is a federal uh, assistance program through the Medicaid program that at least allows us to recoup it at our cost, which has been a big game changer. But it's not just as simple as, oh, here's your money. There's a pretty extensive application process. We have to submit a, a cost report that shows what we actually lost in doing that to get some of that reimbursement. And when you're talking about small volunteer ambulance services, they don't have the resources to do that. So they're, they're not able to necessarily uh, get that funding that we've been able to get back. Um, but nonetheless, it's definitely in crisis. The other factor that comes into it is uh, when you look at the sort of the three legs of public safety, you know, everyone thinks about law enforcement, whether it be the sheriff's office or the police department. Everyone thinks about the fire department. And obviously those are, you know, funded through, through tax mechanisms. But they're also enshrined in Iowa laws that they have to exist. They're, the, the townships have to provide for fire protection. At a minimum, mm -hmm. the county has to ensure that there's a sheriff's office. What a lot of people don't know is there's no, there's no law that says anybody has to operate ambulance service. Right. Uh, I guess that gets into this uh, term that we've heard in the media, essential service, and defining EMS as an essential service. Yeah. And, and what that would do is really make it a mandate for elected officials, whether it be at the county level or the city level, or even the hospital board of trustees, to, to ensure that some entity provides a minimum level of, of ambulance service to its citizens. And more importantly, provides a, a funding mechanism that's not necessarily subject to the changing tides of politics. Right. Nobody right. likes the idea of a tax increase. Um, but when it comes to, to tax, I think, you know, the way that people have to look at it is what services do they see as are important? And as we went through that process, uh, I never once heard anybody say, well, I think we can get by without ambulance service. <laughs> right. right. So, so I think it was, it was recognized that, that People recognize that was a service that we had to have. So this issue is a bit more pertinent for those of us who live in, in more rural communities. Yes, and that's, that's, that's the absolute truth. Uh, you know, I know from my time working as a medic in, a, in the EMS systems in Des Moines, if you called 911, you had an ambulance at your door in less than five minutes. In some areas of Iowa, it's 30 to 45 minutes before an ambulance is going to show up. And that's life or death. Yep. Having Sarah, you know, a spouse that's involved in, in the primary care side of it, we see the other side of that. 
we right. see that that aspect of when people don't get their medications or when they're not compliant or when oh. they have those sudden changes in their in their medication because of a change in insurance we see them right right because they have to rely on you then because they're in a health crisis yep yeah if sarah's managing a patient that has congestive heart failure and all of a sudden the, the insurance company changes that patient's medication and it doesn't work as well in diuresing them and getting that fluid off of their body, uh, the next thing I know, it's a, it's a 911 call for us because right. now they're having trouble breathing because while they were managed well for an extended period of time, this sudden change is, has created that. Yeah. All of this is interconnected. And I think it all whether we're talking about someone who comes into the office or someone who has an emergency that needs to call 911, how do they access high-quality health care and the particular challenges that we face in our rural communities? We've seen the, some of the strengths that we can provide and the relationships, but clearly there are some challenges to provide access to good quality health care. Well, this, I mean, let's talk OB for a second, Jeff. Um, you yes, know, let's, a, a let's. lot of people know that our our OB unit uh, closed down for and, deliveries. And, and we'll explain that's obstetrics. Obstetrics, yes. yes. Delivering those precious babies, bring, bringing life into the world. Uh, one of the most important things I think we can do. One of the things that's really come to light in recent years in rural healthcare is maternal morbidity. Okay, so when you don't have the access to healthcare that you need in an area, you have women getting pregnant that are not accessing prenatal care. Prenatal care is very important because not only does it ensure a healthy pregnancy and a healthy mom, it, you know, it prepares mom and baby for delivery. And, and we catch a lot of things that wouldn't be caught otherwise that, that are red flags that may say, okay, we need to monitor this closely because if this woman delivers her baby in a place that isn't prepared, then we could really run into some problems. Obstetric units are closing all over the country, really, in rural areas mm. because Patients are getting a little bit more complicated. I, I think we're, we're not as healthy as we used to be. Reimbursement is not very good for delivering babies, especially if you run into complications. So if I, ha if I had a patient that was having some complications and I, was, I would be in the hospital for three days, the reimbursement would be the same as if uh, the baby came out easily in 10 minutes. Mm. Um, and so that's hard, A, for providers, but also for hospitals to stay afloat. Hospitals just can't stay afloat. And then litigation. Litigation is pretty, is pretty tough with the profession of OB because things can happen. Um, so I think a mixture of all of that uh, has really led to somewhat of a crisis when it comes to maternal morbidity and mortality. And the United States has actually seen a rise in recent years, and we really shouldn't be seeing a rise. We, we should be lowering that. We know better. We know how to take care of these moms and babies. And, and just to remind our listeners, morbidity, mortality means these mothers are dying. Yep. 
lives are lost. Yes. Dr. Julie Wagner and I both provide prenatal care here in Mount Pleasant. So even though you may not be able to deliver your child here, we will still take care of you with your prenatal and postnatal care and make sure that you deliver and get access to a physician in a neighboring community, such right. as Great River Health Center, right. Iowa City, Mercy, or University of Iowa. And, and as a reminder again to our uh, listening audience, Henry County Health Center has closed its obstetrics unit. That means moms cannot have their babies at HCHC. They have to go to the, these other places that you just mentioned. Well, that's quite an interesting discussion. Uh, we've learned a lot. Uh, we re recognize some of the strengths uh, and attractions of rural health care, practicing uh, medicine in a rural area. Uh, and now we've seen some real challenges that uh, part of these challenges need to be faced in Des Moines. Well, Sarah and, and Jacob, we are so appreciative of what you contribute to the community, and we look forward to many more years of your service to Mount Pleasant, Henry County, and this region. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting us and letting us kind of share with the general public some of the concerns that we have. And thank you very much for, for just being a good listener and, and getting this out to, out to everybody. Yes, thank you. Now I think we'll take a, just a very short break and return in just a moment. For the first time in decades, Labor Day weekend in Mount Pleasant did not include steam whistles. Missing were the smells of fry bread and elk burgers, the taste of pancakes for breakfast, meatloaf for dinner, and ice cream for dessert. The grandstands sat empty and silent. Nothing brings Henry County residents together, working in unity like old threshers. It took a global pandemic to keep us apart. The Henry County Democrats believe that, like old threshers, elected officials should work together. They should be inclusive and working to find common ground. They should not be working to divide us. While citizens may have different opinions and different backgrounds, we believe we can work together to address the issues facing our communities in Southeast Iowa. Let's do this together. Learn more about the Henry County Democrats at henrycountydemocrats.org. Welcome back to our second episode of Porch 84 around healthcare. Jeff, what an amazing interview. This uh, was fabulous. <laughs> this is fabulous. They're two very knowledgeable people who love this community and are doing so much to contribute to it. I learned a lot, and Seriously. I hope our listeners can absorb all that. Me too. I, was, I couldn't help but think to myself how lucky we are to have those two in our community. Not only are they from the area originally, but the have that kind of education, that, that passion uh, for our communities. Those are the kind of people we need here. Those are the kind of people that are community leaders that move our, our communities forward. 
And they, they recognize the strengths that we have and the importance of the relationships that we form in these kinds of communities. I don't want to disparage urban areas, but clearly in a community like ours, you can forge those relationships and, and how important that is and the opportunities that we have. Then, of course, the challenges we face. Right. Jeff, you're in the state house. You're working with you know other fellow Democrats, maybe some moderate Republicans. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things you're looking to do based on what you heard from uh, the interview today and other things you've heard around healthcare? Well, the number one priority, and I've heard this from other Democratic candidates, is to reverse the decision to privatize the management of Medicaid. You heard Sarah refer to MCOs, the managed care organizations. It has deprived some of our patients with at least timely care and maybe care at all and putting literally their lives at risk. And it has created crunches for these healthcare providers, including rural hospitals. Having worked in small colleges, I know that cash flow is king. If the money isn't coming out, it can't be used to pay your own bills. And so that decision has to be overturned. We need to get this back under state control so that we can truly serve the needs of our patients and provide the support for our health care providers. And as we learned, and I had confirmed, because rural communities have a little higher percentage of Medicaid and Medicare patients, it hits our health care providers just a bit harder than even in, uh, in the more urban areas. Sure, sure. So, you know, we had all those issues that came up just, just right there that were so important. And I think to myself, that's all before COVID-19. Yes. And I can't imagine what, what Dr. Ledger and what the EMS services are having to deal with right in the middle of a pandemic. We didn't even get a chance to talk about that. There was so much, and yet this is something that's hitting us square in the eyes right now. Uh, And that's a whole other issue, and maybe we need a whole podcast on that one as well. I think that's a great idea. Until then, please, everyone, continue to wear your masks. Thanks to our medical professionals, our teachers, and everyone across the community. They're doing everything they can to keep our community safe during this pandemic. Amen. One thing I've heard from you, Jeff, is that you feel very privileged to live in a community like Mount Pleasant, like Southeast Iowa, where we do have some great services and great providers across the area. We do. And uh, as we heard from Sarah, how important that relationship is. And I felt that uh, with her and other physicians I've had to deal with here. Uh, And yet we're not out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, We do have access to uh, the the top-level uh, specialized health care that we might find uh, at University of Iowa and so forth. So we have access to that level while enjoying this very personal concern between doctor and patient. And it's I think it's sort of the best of both worlds if we can hang on to it. And that's what I'm concerned about. Well, I guess that wraps it up for episode two of Porch 84. Jeff, thanks again, and thank you to all of our listeners for coming along with us on this journey. For more information about healthcare, to listen to other episodes of the Porch 84 podcast, or just to learn about other important issues in Southeast Iowa, you can visit Jeff's campaign website, and that's fager4statehouse.com, and it's all spelled out, F-A-G-E-R, 
And then four is F-O-R statehouse.com. Fegger for statehouse.com. Episode three of Porch 84 will air next Monday, September 21st. We will be uh, posting a sneak peek of into episode three later on this week uh, on Jeff's campaign Facebook page. And that's Fegger for State House as well. And we look forward to continuing this journey with you next week. From Jeff's porch, thank you. <laughs>